This is Chris from Play Comics, and you're listening to Pop Goes Your World. If you haven't already, subscribe on iTunes. And while you're there, please leave us a rating and review. And now it's time for our feature presentation. I'm Chris McBrien, and the pop culture from Generation X is everything to me. And I'm Derek Myers, and I'm here to educate Chris on the great pop culture of today's generation. Episode 267, Monty Python's The Meaning of Life Movie Review. Brian, along with Derek Myers, and this is Pop Goes Your World, the pop culture podcast for the generations. Now, in keeping with our recurring theme this season of, of going back and reviewing movies that are celebrating major milestones, we're going to be reviewing 1983's Monty Python's The Meaning of Life. We'll see if it stands up after 40 years. But before we get to that, Derek, any pop culture you've been able to take in this past week, my friend? Yeah. Hey, Chris. Uh, a little bit, a little bit. Uh, I think I had mentioned on some of the more recent podcasts that I had lost my access to Netflix because, you know, you're not allowed to share passwords anymore. But uh, recently I have reacquired Netflix and have been starting to binge things that I had not had an opportunity to get to. Very nice. So I've uh, I've, I've watched th- or I've started watching two different series I finished one. I'm halfway through the other one, and uh, I want to tell you a little bit about them because they're both pretty good. The first one is a relatively new series. I think it just dropped in the last couple of weeks, and it's called Who is Aaron Carter? And um, the the premise of this one is, and this happens in the first five minutes of the first episode, so not a spoiler. Uh, a mom and her little girl are in a grocery store, and the grocery store is being robbed, so they hide. And the daughter, unfortunately doesn't hide as well as the mom, and uh, one of the robbers points a gun at the little girl, and then the mom, jumps into action and basically disarms the guard, beats the crap out of him and ends up killing him in the process. And then you start to realize, oh, this mom isn't just a single stay at home. Well, she's not stay at home, but a single mom who's a part time teacher like this mom has a history. And so then that's she's the Aaron Carter of the title. And it's like, well, who is Aaron Carter? And then you find out like she's got this mysterious past and she can clearly like fight. And it seems like she's maybe a spy or a police officer or a criminal or a, there's something going on. So there's this mystery element, but at the same time, she doesn't know what's going on and neither do we as the audience. So it's, it was interesting. It ran seven episodes. Uh, most of the episodes were around 45 minutes, so it didn't take that long to binge through. It was really good. I really enjoyed it. And honestly, I didn't know a single person in the cast. Uh, no, that's a lie. There was one person who makes a guest appearance in, I think like the fourth or fifth episode that I'm like, Oh, I think that's so-and-so, but otherwise I didn't know anybody. It, uh, it takes place in Barcelona, and most of the cast is either British or Spanish. And uh, it is primarily English, um, so don't worry about that. Not a lot of subtitles, but uh, no, it was quite good. I really liked it, and uh, it was nice to see a woman kicking ass for a change and not having to be the damsel in distress. So who is Aaron Carter? Definitely two thumbs up for me on Netflix. And, uh, and so if yeah. I can jump in. So I'm assuming that's Aaron Carter, E-R-I-N. Aaron yes, Carter. not to be confused with the pop singer. That's what I thought. So you're like, who is Aaron Carter? I'm like, didn't they need to like die or something like that? Or it was his brother Nick or I something? And I was like, what's this all about? I thought it was Aaron, like A-A-R-O-N Carter. But okay. So uh, screw the patriarchy, man. You hear Aaron and you think of a guy. What's wrong with you? Yeah. Go for uh, it. All right. Then the other series I'm well, watching. Just because it's, it's a famous name. Aaron no, Carter no, no, was I a know, guy. I know. I'm so. just, I'm just busting yeah. 
Um, the other one that I started watching, I, it actually came out a few months ago, and I, I remember he, people talking about it when it dropped, and again, because I didn't have Netflix, I didn't know what they were talking about. It's based on a, uh, a novel, and it's a series called The Night Agent. And the night agent in question is um, basically, he works in the White House, and he works in this secure room in the basement, and there's a telephone. Think like the bat phone. There's no phone number. There's no buttons or dials on. It's mm-hmm. just an old-school telephone with a light. And you find out that this is the absolute lowest position that an FBI officer can have. And the idea is if a spy ever gets in trouble, they'll call this night agent hotline. And his job is just to answer it, take down their code phrase, and then send for reinforcements. And when he takes the job, they basically say this is sort of like a punishment assignment because the phone never rings. And sure enough, in the first episode, the phone rings and shenanigans ensue. And this guy who's on the list basically has to jump into action and do stuff despite the fact that he's, you know, this very low level person who has this, you know, uh, problems in his past, which has put him on the list in the first place. So, uh, no, I'm halfway through it. It's 10 episodes. I I feel already by episode five, it's kind of dragging a little bit, but I've heard very good things. Uh, Apparently, it's based on a book. I was reading the review of the book and it, it got very good reviews. So. I'm really looking forward to watching the end of this one. So two good series that I'm really enjoying. Who is Aaron Carter was really good. And the night agent I'm really enjoying both of those on Netflix. Awesome. Apparently Derek, we are the number two rated film and TV podcast in Mauritius. I don't know what that is. Do you have family in Mauritius by any chance, Derek? Uh, Well, I don't think so, but is that a place? It's an Island country in the Indian ocean. Just east of Madagascar. Oh, why didn't you say so? Did you take geography in school? Do not offend the people of Mauritius, Derek. We're number two over there. They like us. All right. I kind of wonder what number one is. Who's beating us? God only knows. I wouldn't normally bring this up. Okay. But I mean, tomorrow is is my birthday. So, I mean, oh, stop. Stop. Turn that off. Stop that. Stop that. Stop it. It's not. The only reason I bring it up is that tomorrow morning I'm going to wake up and I guess what? I'm going to be. Wilford Brimley in Cocoon Old, Derek. You're going to be 65? He looks like he's 65 in that movie. I can't believe it. I'm going to be as old as Wilford Brimley was when he did Cocoon. But I'm not going to look like that, I hope. Although I was out the other night and I was with a friend and we were like, we were at this restaurant and this guy comes over to me and he's like, I've I've been looking at you all night. I, 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 I just had to come over and talk to you. And I'm thinking... Like, does he know me from somewhere? Like, does he recognize me from something? I don't know. This is weird. And he's like, you're like the spitting image of my best friend. And I'm like, oh. And he pulls out his phone and shows me a picture of this guy that's like 75 years old. Jeez, <laughs> <laughs> like, man. You got to be kidding me. It just sucks. So anyway, I, I did want to say, so for, for my birthday, I have a request. Okay. For anyone and everyone who listens to this podcast, I'd like to ask for a birthday gift from all of you. Please take two minutes and go into iTunes or onto IMDb because we're there and rate the podcast for us. You know, you can give us a rating out of five on iTunes or a rating out of 10 on IMDb. We actually have an IMDb page, Derek. You know, we made it to the big time, you know, just ask the citizens of Mauritius. (laughs) (laughs) So that's my pop culture thing this week. I'd like to ask for a birthday gift. Two minutes of your time. Either, uh, either iTunes or IMDb or, or both if you got four minutes, I guess. Just rate the podcast, you know. Uh, we do this show not for money. We do it, you know, each and every week. We do it for, for everybody that takes time to li- out of their day to listen. So we just ask that you take a, a few minutes and you just rate the show for us. So anyway, on that note, I want to say thank you. 
Here's your dad joke of the week. Derek, since we're doing Monty Python's The Meaning of Life tonight, I thought I should do a meaning of life dad joke for everyone. Okay. Okay. So, Derek, what do you call a dinosaur that ponders the meaning of life? Chris McBride. No, a philosophosaurus. No? No. Yeah. In your face, in the face. Cole got to be, you know s***. And we're going to do a police lineup. Back yourself a pro. Let you get that great matter back before you get TCB and man. The real money's in f***ing fart jokes. They go down and smack them, yak them. Well, what do you expect there, Canadian? Why are you always in such a bloody rush, man? But he has Yeah, look here. I can dig some of that grease to chomp it on some butter, drag it through the gun. Uncle f***. Ooh, I'm glad that's not me. I hate to break it to you, lady, but you're sucking on my arm. <laughs> that might be one of the dirtiest drops ever. <laughs> my God. Just, and, and totally un-PC. Okay, Derek, there's an age-old question that's been pondered by philosophers and artists and, and philosophosauruses, by the way. Apparently. <laughs> For as long as we've been around. And it's, what is the meaning of life? So, Derek, you're an intellectual. What's the meaning of life? I have no idea. Oh, what is, what is the thing they ask Conan? Uh, to drive your enemies before you and to hear the lamentations of the women. Oh, that, that works. Something like that. I don't remember. They ask him what is best in life. Oh, there you go. To see your enemies dead before you. Sorry, I screwed up the bit. I should have looked it up beforehand. I knew you were going to ask me that. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to put you on the spot. I don't know. Like, I mean, I, I think it's important to have a philosophy of life that helps you understand who you are. You know, I guess and I always think back to like Jaws. Remember when Hooper says the meaning of life, at least for sharks, is to swim and eat and make little sharks. And at the most basic level, I think you could probably apply that to humans, you know, but since humans have a capacity for, you know, so much more like complex reasoning and language and introspection and all that stuff. You know, there's more than just eating and making babies. And so Mighty Python took a stab at answering this age-old question back in 1983 with Monty Python's The Meaning of Life. But before I think we get into this movie, I think it's worth having a little bit of background on Monty Python. What do you think, Derek? Yeah, I think I think that's important we to probably set the stage. You know. Although, in all fairness, people who listen to this podcast are probably, probably pretty well-versed in Monty Python. But you never know. We might have some Monty Python virgins, so... yeah. Give us a history. And I think even, even if you know Monty Python, you like Monty Python, it's still maybe you don't know everything about how they were formed and stuff because they were formed as a comedy troupe back in 1969. And, and they, of course, is the British comedians John Cleese, Graham Chapman, Michael Palin, Eric Idle and Terry Jones. Terry Gilliam was the lone American of the group. He was born in Minneapolis. He was educated in L.A. and he became a cartoonist before he moved to England and met up with the other troop members. But they were all big fans of this British TV show called Do Not Adjust Your Set. And Gilliam actually worked on the show as an animator. And then all six of them got together and they attended a taping of the show one night. And then after the show, they all just kind of started talking and stuff and they formed the comedy troupe from there. So the name, Monty Python. Originally, when they got the gig on BBC, the BBC, the studio, wanted to call the show John Cleese's Flying Circus. Cleese didn't want his name out front. 
for lots of different reasons. Yeah. So like, he didn't want to be like the f- front man. And he also, I think selfishly, if it bombed, he didn't want his name attached to it. Right. So they said, we got to come up with like an absurd name. And that was Monty Python because why not? Right. So the TV show Monty Python's Flying Circus ran from 1969 to 1983. And the troupe officially made five films together under the Monty Python banner. They made and now for something completely different in 1971, which was just a collection of sketches from the TV show, really. They did Monty Python and the Holy Grail in 75, Life of Brian in 79, Monty Python Live at the Hollywood Bowl in 1982. And that was a live recording of their sketches. It's really good. And then Monty Python's The Meaning of Life in 83. Now, the other thing is, is that the members of the troupe also appeared in a bunch of movies that were not Monty Python films like Jabberwocky in 77 and Terry Gilliam's Trilogy of Imagination, Time Bandits from 81, which I just love that movie, and Brazil in 85 and The Adventures of Baron Munchausen in 88. And then there was also Yellowbeard in 88 and A Fish Called Wanda, or sorry, Yellowbeard was 83 and Fish Called Wanda was 88. But if you look at the work that they did, on t- especially the TV show, some of the most influential stuff in the history of comedy, it... it shaped everything from Saturday Night Live to South Park and everything in between. And I found a quote, you know, John Oliver, the comedian. Yep. He said it best. He said, and I quote, writing about the importance of Monty Python is basically pointless. Citing them as an influence is almost redundant. It's just assumed. And I, and I think it's a, that's a good, pretty good quote, you know? Yeah, it's a good quote. Like they were such an influence on comedy and it was just such a, they were a Gen X staple. So I felt we needed to do something of theirs on the podcast here. But this season, we're only looking at movies celebrating major milestone anniversaries. And the only movie of theirs that falls into that category is The Meaning of Life because it came out in 83. So it's like 40 years since it came out. And I want to get your take on it, but I think of all their movies, I actually think it's their worst movie. And you could make the argument that this movie isn't actually all that good at all. But like I say, I just, I wanted to get a conversation about Monty Python into the show just so much that I, I, I decided to nominate this movie for review here on the podcast. But uh, going back and watching it after 40 years, what was your initial take on it? So my relationship with Monty Python, before I get into that, my relationship with Monty mm-hmm. Python is sort of a Johnny come lately. I didn't really, well, I didn't discover them until probably uh, when I went away to university. And again, it's one of those things where somebody you meet who says, oh, you're into movies. You know, what do you like? What do I like? Let's look at your videos. Let's look at my videos. And then inevitably you get around to, have you seen these Monty Python movies? And my answer was no, I, I don't know what these are. And so that was my introduction to Monty Python would have been in the mid 90s, which by then, I mean, the show was off the air and all the movies had long happened. Um, So you were I'm experiencing them years after the fact. Um, And and I enjoyed what I saw at the time. I I got a chance to look at some of the um, the older television sketches. Uh, I mean, we didn't have YouTube at that time, so you couldn't just go on the Internet. But a lot of people had a lot of the videos, Uh, Monty Python and the Holy Grail was on constant repeat in the dorm over and over again. So that one got viewed hundreds of times. And then one of my friends actually had the CD, Monty Python Sings, and it's a recording of all of their most famous songs. So I actually got to know the songs uh, before I I saw a lot of the sketches. So when I finally saw the sketches that the songs belong to, I I knew the songs and and I found that was uh, was an interesting way to experience some of the comedy, knowing the music and then getting to see the 
the visuals that went with it. Um, I, I, I'm a fan. Uh, there was actually a really great six part documentary series that they uh, they put out in 2009 uh, that I watched and thoroughly enjoyed. And just, you know, by then, that's it's literally everything you could ever want to know about Money Python and then some. Um, but I don't find that they're the kind of uh, like their movies aren't really things that I go back to now and watch that frequently. I'm aware mm-hmm. of them, but. Uh, you know, we talk about comfort films or, you know, what are your f- three favorite movies you'll watch over and over again? Oh, Star Wars is on. I'm going to watch it kind of thing. Monty Python's never my go to. Um, I mean, I like it, but it's not my favorite. And um, I realized when we went to watch uh, The Meaning of Life this week, I couldn't find it on any of the streamers. So I thought, oh, boy, well, let me go check the personal collection. And lo and behold, I had the 20th anniversary DVD special edition collection yes. of the Monty Python's The Meaning of Life. So I was like, great. So uh, it was the 20th anniversary, and we're watching it 20 years after that for the 40th anniversary. So that was an interesting sort of parallel. Uh, I realized that I had only seen this movie once before because when I watched it again this week, it a lot of it was new to me. Mm-hmm. I, I just had no memory of it. I knew the musical numbers simply because I knew the song so well. But the overwhelming majority of this movie, I felt like I was watching it for the first time. And let me tell you, it was f- terrible. This movie was awful. I couldn't believe how bad it was. I was like watching it going, is it almost over? Oh, it's only been 20 minutes? Come on, it can't be that much longer. Oh, how much longer now? Oh, it's only been 40 minutes? Jeez, when is this garbage going to end? It was terrible. I couldn't get over how bad it was. Yeah, like I say, it's it's not one of their best. That's for sure. It's their worst. I would have just like... I couldn't believe we own this DVD. I said to myself after I finished watching, I'm like, my wife must have bought this because there's no way I would have bought this movie knowing I'd only seen it once before and realizing it was this bad. Like, I can't believe that 20 years ago, if I had watched it then, I I would have enjoyed it enough to want to own it. So, yeah, I I was thoroughly disappointed. Uh, I, I did a lot of the reading after I watched the movie, and it seems that even the troupe felt that this was their not their best outing that a lot of the, the the movie lacked cohesion. There was a lot of criticism like that the, mm-hmm. the troupe themselves threw on this movie. And now I get the sense that in the moment, they're trying to make money. So they oh, were promoting sure. it pretty well. But I got the sense that as time has passed, a lot of disparaging words were said about this film. And you know what? Most of those are pretty accurate. So in 1983, the top 10 at the box office were Return of the Jedi. Tootsie was number two, even though that came out in December of the year before. Flashdance was three. Trading Places four. War Games was five. Octopussy, Staying Alive. Oh God, that movie was awful. Risky Business at eight. Mr. Mom was nine, and number ten, rounding out the top ten, was National Lampoon's Vacation. So quite a few good movies. That's a pretty good list. Yeah. And so this film was made on a budget of nine million dollars. It made just under fifteen million at the domestic U.S. box office. It finished in forty eighth place between. Private School and Cheech and Chong Still Smoking. I've seen both of those movies. Yeah. So this, <laughs> this film actually ended up with $42 million in worldwide grosses. So it wasn't a hit at all. Uh, probably a combination of a few things. I think if you look back, audiences didn't exactly flock to Monty Python movies. You know? No, not in America. No. Even worldwide. Like, I mean, Life of Brian took in $19 million domestically, U.S. Holy Grail only made $1.6 million. At the U.S. box office. So American audiences didn't flock to these movies. And I think also the fact that 
the meaning of life was rated R. So the audience was very limited, you know, and then you add to that the fact that the movie isn't all that good. You know, it just, it wasn't successful. And, you know, it's funny, you know, you look back and, and I, you know, I don't want, I don't want to disparage Monty Python anyway, because as influential as they ended up being, they were never big box office champs. That's for yeah. sure. The, the influence they had was more on the artists than it was on mainstream audiences. Yeah. Yeah. I'll agree. And, uh, I mean, to, to your point of the John Oliver quote, like it's hard to believe that anyone who's in comedy today isn't influenced in some way by mm-hmm. Monty Python's legacy. But as is often the case, the person who sort of beats the path first, you know, is often not appreciated until way in the future as other people have retread upon that path. Um, so, yeah. This movie is really, really weird. At points it, too, it is bizarre. It's got it's it's funny because it's got a couple of really strong parts in it, but it also has some really bad parts. It gets very uneven. You know, I think you mentioned that too. That's yeah, and and I think that was one of the the things that kept appearing when I was reading it was they were they were saying that it was you know obviously the troupe it's a sketch comedy troupe so they're basically trying to make a movie that's just full of sketches. Yes, which we've seen some of those. Those kinds of movies often don't do very well, um, and often it's because of the quality of the material. But but there are some that work very well, and that that this format does work under the right circumstances. Uh, but unfortunately, with this one, I think yeah, you've got a couple of diamonds in the rough, a couple of sketches that stand out and that sort of stand the test of time. But for the most part, there's just a lot of weirdness. I got the sense it was almost like, and I don't know if there's any truth to this, but to me, it felt like the troupe had been together a long time. It almost felt like they had a contractual obligation to make this movie. So they sort of went into the file and said, what do we have left in this cabinet that we haven't used before? And they're like, well, these are all the sketches that we couldn't really make work on the TV show. And they're like, well, why don't we dust off a few of them? We got to fill 90 minutes. That's what it felt like. Mm -hmm. Again, don't know if that's actually what happened. But like I said, a couple of them were were good. Most of them were not. Let's go up and down with this because the opening of the film it starts out with that short film that's just plain bizarre and not funny at all. It's called The Crimson Permanent Assurance. So this was originally written to be an animated segment in like section five of the movie. But Terry Gilliam thought it would play better as live action. So mm-hmm. they decided to turn it into this like short film before the, which was something that was very common, by the way, with British films all the way up until the 70s. And... You know, it's this short film. Apparently, it's like a bit of a commentary on unchecked capitalism. And I guess I guess that's fine and all. But like, what the hell is it doing here in this movie? It has nothing to do with the, the meaning of life, you know. So it's got these old men in this office building that work like slaves. And then one of them gets fired. So they hold a mutiny. And then I like the one thing I did laugh at was in sort of typical British fashion that the leader of the mutiny is like barking out orders and he's like, you, you and you break out the weapons. You, you and you get the riggings and you put the kettle on. Yeah. <laughs> I laughed because you know, got to have tea, right? It's British. Of course. Of course. So they unmoor the building. So now it's like a ship and they set sail for what looks to be lower Manhattan. And then they attack this corporate head office. And I don't know if you recognize it or not, but the head executive guy was Matt Frewer. Matt Frewer, yeah. yeah Max Headroom from yep. TV. Now, he, he was huge there for a while when he did Max Headroom. But this was 83, so it was before that. Yeah, this was, yeah. This would have been his, like, acting debut, actually. But, so anyway, the, the old men, like, they 
pillage all these corporate offices and then they fall off the edge of the earth because it turns out the earth is flat. There's still people around today, by the way, that believe that, Derek. You know, but sorry, just flat. to circle back, I yeah. find that's, this is always, I mean, you can say speak to this better than I can, but I find this is what I always hear about sketch comedy is the hardest part of any sketch is figuring out how to end it. And I find that Monty Python uh, often does this better than than other sketch troops where they just cut to it, cut to an animated short or like in this case, if the thing falls off the edge of the world or, you know, you have the big giant foot that comes down and steps on everyone like they don't have to explain why it's ending. They just do something ridiculous. So I actually chuckled at the the idea of the 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 office that became a ship that fell off the side of the that fell off the flat earth like that made me chuckle because to me that was very Monty Python esque. It, I would have been probably more disappointed if they had come up with a more refined way to end the sketch. Um, but yeah, to your point, like the thing runs almost 15 minutes and with the exception of the guys on the rigging, washing the windows when they finally get to the, the promised land, none of the members of the troop are even in the sketch. Right. Um, uh, can you call it a sketch? I, I guess it's 15 minutes. It's more of a short film. Yeah. So and that was what I kept thinking too. Is like, it's kind of a bold choice to put this at the beginning of your movie. It's, it's not funny. It's, it's maybe amusing or interesting. Um, you know, you can see the social commentary in it and the ridiculousness of some of it, but to not have any of your primary stars and familiar faces show up for 15 to 20 minutes in, like, that's that's a interesting choice, and I don't necessarily know if it worked. Well, and to your point of them not ending their sketches, you know, in a clean way, in a gratifying way for the audience, they were known for that. They were known for a lot of their sketches on their old show. Which just, they would just end. There was, ton, there was, I think, a few sketches back in the day where they, like, John Cleese would just turn and just, let's just end this thing. <laughs> and then we just yeah. end it. Like, I mean, it just, it, it was a thing. Well, the I mean, ki- think of kids the in the hall the really picked up on that too. Yeah. They were yes. similar that way. They just, they didn't always have a gratifying ending to their sketches. And I think it was sort of influenced by, by Monty Python as well. Oh, no doubt. No doubt. But like, think of the movie, the um, Monty Python, the Holy Grail. Like think of the ridiculous ending to that. Like, mm. again, it's, you, you, you were watching it sort of going, where is this going? And then it's just this, bizarre outcome it's almost like the end of blazing saddles where it just becomes right. a big musical number right so sometimes that that sometimes it works uh and in a lot of the shorter sketches for monty python it does so again if you're a fan coming into this uh you, you almost expect that that's how some of these sketches are going to end in just some ridiculous fashion i was thinking like when at the end when it, that building falls off the the edge of the earth and then that the credits run for this short film yeah, I can only imagine back in 1983 audiences, especially American audiences, they must have been like, what the hell am I watching? Like it must yeah. have confused people because like, I was confused even watching it. Like it's a bizarre way to start a movie, I think. So then it goes to the fish in the restaurant aquarium. And I actually like this concept. Yeah, me too. I like how they personify the fish. Like they're all proper and social. Yeah. You know, like, good day. Good day. Oh, look, Howard's being eaten. Yeah. And they're like, is he? Oh, it makes you think, doesn't it? I think this would have been a much better way to start off the movie. Cold open with the fish in the aquarium. Because Monty Python basically originated that whole cold open thing in their TV series. Mm -hmm. You know, SNL really picked up on it, but they started it. This would have been a perfect way to start the film. I think better than that stupid short film. So, and it plays right into the whole meaning of life thing. Like, you know, cause it like makes you think, doesn't it? I don't know. Mm-hmm. So then it goes into miracle of birth and there's the scene with the modern world with the doctors 
in the advanced the machine, machine that goes bing bing, <laughs> and then they contrast that with olden day England with the poverty and the Catholics that have like fifty kids. The baby falls out of the woman when she's doing the dishes. Yeah. <laughs> Monty Python never shied away from offending religions. If you no think kidding. like Life of Brian was pretty much ninety minutes of like complete offensive content for Christians. But I actually liked how in they contrast the Catholics and the Protestants in this scene. And yeah. the, the dad walks into the room after he's like working in the mine or whatever. And he, there's like 50 kids in the room. And he's like, oh, I've got an announcement to make. Go get the others. And I'm like, the others? Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. I was like laughing at that. And then he's like, we're destitute. We got to sell the lot of you for scientific research. <laughs> I was like, oh, my God. And then they sing that song, you know, every sperm is sacred. And. So it's better to have 50 kids and sell them into scientific research than it is to use birth control. And that's the comment they're making. And then you've got these Protestants next door that are all yeah, prim that, and I laughed at the Protestants that, me too. before this time. Yeah. Again, because I knew the song, the Ever Sperm Sacred song, I knew it so well. Although I didn't remember all the visuals from the movie, which I enjoyed watching. Like that, That's one of the sketches that stands out and in large part because of the song. But I didn't remember... The Protestant part right after it. So that that part I really did laugh at. It was, was funny. And they're like, we, we've got two children and we've had sex twice. And then the guy's like, well, I could have used a condom if I had one. Have you got one? <laughs> he laughed at that. And he's like, that's not the point. If I wanted to, I could go down to the pharmacy, hold my head high and say, I wish to buy a condom. In fact, I think I'll take a French tickler. And his wife's <laughs> like, would you? Yeah. <laughs> like that whole part was so funny. Because it was like, I think it was one of the strongest parts of the movie. Was, I agree. And and what I kept, as I was watching it, it kept thinking this very much, this dynamic reminds me of um, Sheldon and, and Amy in The Big Bang Theory. Ah, like that's that's yeah. all I kept thinking. And obviously this came well ahead of that. But right. to your point about Monty Python influencing other other things, like, not that this is a very, uh, not that this is a unique concept, but just the way that the the couple interacted and reacted with each other, the obliviousness of the man versus, you know, just stating it. And then the woman mm-hmm. like clear is like, oh, well, yes, could you, would you? Uh, that that was where my mind went as I was watching this was like, oh, it's it's good to see that some things can be done again and again and again in a different context and still be funny. Yeah, that's a good comparison to make there. I like the, the contrast between these different religions and how they view sex and life in general and stuff. Like the the Catholic says to his kids, I'm not allowed to use birth control. And one kid's like, well, couldn't you cut your off? And he's like, oh, no, no. God would see right through that trick. Yeah. It's off to science experiments for the lot of you. <laughs> like, so, I mean, that was all pretty funny. And the thing is, it got me thinking, it's, it's always the same old thing. You know, it's like fear of God, fear of God, fear of God. How they just use religion to scare people and control them, you know? So then it goes into the university sex ed class, which I thought was another strong part of the film. I like how John Cleese is giving orders to the students and how they got to move their clothes down to the lower peg unless they've got like a younger brother who's walking home after doing his homework and write a note to the headmaster before you walk through the field and have to eat lunch. And you could totally tell that he's just improvising the whole yes. thing because oh, he repeats sure. it a few times and it's always different, you know, except for the moving your clothes to the lower peg. And then he, he starts his lesson about sexual intercourse and he's like, okay, does anyone know what happens after you take your clothes off? You put them on the lower peg, sir. <laughs> that, and that made me laugh out loud when that guy said that. But I thought this was an amazing idea for a sketch or a scene in a movie, I guess. 
the teacher explains sex edge by actually having intercourse with his wife in front of the class. And yeah. I'm like, oh my God, how outrageous. <laughs> He's but again, like, as a, as a, as a, a demonstration, not as a, not as a, uh, you know, it's, it's the mechanics, yeah. not the, the emotional enjoyment, the no. physical enjoyment of it. It was just the, you know, tab A into slot B, quite literally. You know, uh, yeah, like, as you'll notice, the penis is more or less erect. More or less, yeah. <laughs> it's a, but again, it just shows the movie's so uneven because it's got these little glimpses of promise in the sketches. And then it just goes to something else and just falls flat because it goes right from that sex ed scene into the rugby match. Yeah, which uh, to I, me made no real sense. I uh, guess to show that life's unfair. And it's rigged sure. against you at times, I guess, that you're always outmatched or something. I don't know. So one thing that, that kind of came to mind is this whole idea of stream of consciousness. So one thing I always liked about Monty Python, especially their old TV sketches, was stream of consciousness. So the sketches that they did never took the form of the standard joke telling that we're used to. You know, right. like they didn't always have that setup and a punchline. Instead, they, they used to always use the stream of consciousness approach to storytelling, especially Gilliam. And which is, you know, crafted the way, the way, you know, people think, you know, like the, like a lot of storytelling is done very linear, in a linear, linear way. You know, it's, right. it's very straightforward, you know, like you're, you're, you're trying to convey a message. So, I mean, it makes sense, but in stream of consciousness style, you do things more the way people really think and go about their, their day. Like, I mean, if you, you know, if you get up in the morning you get out of bed and you go to work, that would be like a linear storytelling, but Stream of consciousness is more like, you know, you wake up, you look down at your feet, you wonder if you're late. You're like, oh man, I'm always late. You know, why am I always late? Oh, I got to skip breakfast. Oh, I hate missing breakfast. Oh, I'm going to be miserable all day. Why is the dog barking? What? My, oh my God, my shoelace is untied. Like that whole stream of consciousness, I just love because it's the way humans think. But storytelling never reflects that. Um, but, but stream of consciousness does. And for me, it's always been something Monty Python was good at. But here it's just like I was kept hoping to, to get more of it, but it just came off as disjointed and uneven. Like I say, it's, mm -hmm. this is not their best work. It really misses the mark overall. Yeah. Yeah. And even the parts that I did find humorous or amusing, it wasn't laugh out loud. Like I didn't once laugh out loud at something. Again, not that I expect every part of this movie to be laugh out loud. haha, funny. I felt that. It, it really didn't hit that at all. Like I had a few sort of like, huh, that's amusing. Like sort of that was the extent of the humor factor for me or, oh, it was more the ones that worked. I was thinking more to myself. Oh, that's clever. Like it wasn't so much. Haha, this is funny as much as it's. Oh, that's an interesting way to look at this. That's clever. Uh, again, maybe it's maybe it's that it's 40 years old. Like mm -hmm. I find sometimes humor is contextual. Uh, it very often is timely based on the time in which it's presented. It's often social commentary on what's happening in the world around you. And I mean, after 40 years, the things they were talking about, I've obviously some of them have changed. Some of them probably have not. Uh, so I, I had to take that into consideration. And the fact that they're British, right? Like this is... Uh, I think a lot of their uh, their source of their inspiration is comes from from life in England and London, which you got to, you know, you sort of on its face think, well, you know, it's similar enough to what we are. Uh, but it is a different country, different economics, different history, different different way of looking at things. And while I like to think that I get British comedy, I'm sure there's times when I just absolutely do not simply because I, I don't have that 
that frame of reference. So just to go back to the stream of consciousness storytelling for a second, because I was thinking that World War One trench scene, perfect example of how you do this, right? The soldiers are about to go over the edge of the trench, <clears throat> and the one says to the captain, you know, that he's really enjoyed fighting alongside him. And so have the others. So they decided to take up a collection. Yeah. And they, and they bought him this delicate glass clock. And then the other guy's like, oh, I bought you one too. It's like a grandfather clock. And then the captain's angry because the, the, they've got a war battle to fight, right? And then the soldiers think he's ungrateful. And they're like, well, he even made you a cake. And then so the, the captain gives in. And then they set up a table to have cake. And all, everyone gets shot because their guard's down. So it's like perfect sort of stream of consciousness storytelling, which I thought was good. Another one I thought was good was the drill sergeant scene. I think it is a great scene, but it plays as a sketch. It's not connected to the movie at all. Like, what the hell does it have to do with the meaning of life? Yeah, I don't know. Honestly, I didn't find that. I didn't enjoy that one at all. It was sort of a one one gag joke that went on way too long. And I, I think like, it's, I think it was good because Michael Palin is just so over the top, and he, and, yes. he, and he needs to be to, to to make the scene work and to sell it. But you know, I love how he's like loud and authoritarian and he barks orders and they're like we're gonna be marching up and down the square unless you've got something better to do which you know nobody's gonna do it he's taunting them say so would have something really rather be doing and the one guy's like actually i'd rather be home with the wife and kids oh yeah no, with the wife and kids all right off you go <laughs> i'm like what <laughs> like it actually made me laugh and the other guy's like well i've actually been learning the piano sir he's like the piano You'd rather be practicing? Yes, sir. All right, off you go. <laughs> so again, I thought it was a great sketch, a great idea, but it was just disconnected from the rest of the movie. So again, like there was, there were moments that were like pretty good, like, like, but they just didn't fit together. And then I thought things got really weird in the second half of the movie. Like really, yeah. really weird. Yeah, the whole scene with uh, where they're battling the Zulus and stuff. I'm like, I was so disinterested. I was like, where is this going? Like, it's not funny. Like, what are they do, trying to accomplish here? I was, I was starting to get lost. And then and then they just they end it where he unzips the costume and he goes, we're in the middle of the movie. And I'm like, OK, that to me was a very Monty Python-esque way to end the sketch. Right. The 10 minutes or so leading up to it, it's like, is this almost over yet? Oh, my God. We're not even halfway. Typical British humor because the guy's missing his leg. It's like, oh, it's nothing. It's nothing at all. You know, it'll grow back. right? Yeah, it'll grow back. And this, I think it was just a, a fly or something that bit it. And uh, but the, the whole I don't know if it was a dream sequence where they're like, where's the fishy fish? Where could he be? I was like, what the hell is going on here? Like, it was just so bizarre. I don't know what the, their affinity for fish is. It came up again in A Fish Called Wanda, too. Maybe it's an ongoing thing for them. I don't know. So there was the, the liver scene where the guy comes in for the man's liver. Apparently, he filled out a donor card or something. And then he's like, well, I'm not done with it yet. I'm still using it. And then they cut it out of him, and there's blood everywhere. Mm. I did laugh because when John Cleese is, like, wooing the wife, he's like, yeah, are you going to remarry? <clears throat> you're an attractive woman. And she's like, no, I don't think I'll get hitched again. Can we have your liver then? <laughs> like that made yeah. me laugh. You know, because I like when things take kind of a right turn. It always makes me laugh. Yeah. So then, and then the, they have, and then they have the great music, the great musical number there. Yes, where he takes them out and walks through space. Yeah, so, yeah, that was that was pretty good. You know, you mentioned like you've mentioned in the past about uh, fart jokes. That's and where the, the money is. Yeah, the restaurant scene with the fat guy who barfs. So Derek, 
this is like fart jokes to the extreme because the scene basically starts with Eric Idle as a lounge singer, which is just one long joke, his song. Again, a song that's on the CD. So I knew that one. And right. la- uh, that actually I laughed at just again, because I knew the song. And then Terry Gilliam's fat man is just one long fart joke, really. I mean, in this case, he's barfing, you know, and it just yeah. comes like like a hose and it's got like chunks in it. John Cleese is like wiping off the menu. It looks like oatmeal or something. It's so gross. It's like the scene in Stand By Me with Lars and the pie eating contest where just like a hose coming out. Yeah. So I think the barf scene is pretty memorable to a lot of people just because it's such an extreme take on everything. But then again, it's so disjointed because the last bit of the movie, again, it's just weird. Like the Grim Reaper scene is weird. Yeah. And and again, not funny. Like I'm watching and sort of going, where are they going with this? Like, what's the point of this sketch? And no, I just, I did, I don't know. Maybe I just didn't get it, but it, it, it seemed odd and out of place. Like you knew the movies called the meaning of life. They're going through the stages of life. So, you know, there's eventually going to be a death component, but there had to be a funnier way to do that. Yeah. And they take him into this hotel in heaven and it's weird. And that final musical number with, Graham Chapman with the fake white teeth. It was just just weird and disjointed. I say overall, I thought there was a few nuggets of good stuff in it, but overall, this movie kind of sucks. <laughs> it really yeah. does, which is unfortunate because I do have fond memories of Monty Python as a general rule of thumb. But and I wanted to get them into the podcast, so and this is the only way I could seem to be able to do it. But it's unfortunate because I didn't think this movie was very good. Yeah, I stick with my original comment. It's terrible yeah yeah it wasn't that good uh do you want to give it a rating out of 10 uh i think i'd probably give it a four out of ten because the songs give it some points and there were a couple of memorable decent sketches in there but they were few and far between i think four is very generous it's funny that's more of a it's more of a leg you know when the guy wins the oscar for a crappy movie they're like well this is his body of work this four out of 10 I'm giving them is for their body of work. Yeah, I think uh, the number I wrote down was four as well. I think it's more like a two, but I think because it's Monty Python, I'll, I'll bump it up to a four for them. But uh, yeah. yeah, overall, not very good. All right, on that note, let's have some fun with Caveman. All right, my friend, I'm going to relax and I'm going to turn things over to you for trivia. What have you got for us tonight? All right. We're going to play a favorite game of ours called Pick the Flick. Yes. Pick the Flick. Yeah, pick the flick. You get the synopsis, then pick the flick. You get the year, pick the flick. All right. How is this going to work? All right. Well, I do want to say that I, I'm sympathizing with the Yancey a lot because you stepped on a lot of this trivia as oh, you were sorry. talking about Monty Python. And I should have known better. And I should have made the trivia a little more hard, a little more off center or a little harder. But it is where it is. We're going to stick with it. So uh, as you mentioned, the uh, the cast members of Monty Python's mm-hmm. Flying Circus appeared in a number of movies that were not. Monty Python movies. True. So I'm going to read you the synopsis of some films. Okay. And they'll give you the year it came out. And each one of these stars at least one member of the Monty Python's troupe. Okay. I've got uh, eight movies on the list. And then after that, 
I've got a much shorter list of movies that are all directed by a Monty Python cast member. Oh, cool. Okay. So first, we're just going to do they are in the movie. Okay. All right. So uh, this first one is from 19. And I'm sorry. Some of these are a little outside of your comfort zone, okay. but they did work after 1989. So, you know, do your best. All right. This one's from 1997. Zookeepers struggle to deal with the policies of a changing director. From 1997? Yes. Zookeepers. It starred John Cleese and Michael Palin. Um, was it Fierce Creatures? Yes. Oh, yes. yes. It, was. it was the sequel. Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah, it was sort of the sequel, not a sequel. It's yeah. almost the same cast from... Um, right. From one of the other ones, I struggled with because I, I I didn't see that movie. Yeah, so it was it wasn't bad. It came out when I was at Blockbuster Video. It, mm-hmm. it wasn't as good as their other stuff, but it was pretty decent. Right. Okay, um, this one uh, okay, it's from two thousand and one. Mm-hmm. Big movie, possibly one of the number one or number two movies of the year. Mm-hmm. An orphaned boy enrolls in a special school where he learns the truth about himself, his family. And the terrible things that exist in the world. John Cleese was in the first Harry Potter film, so I would he say sure was that, was. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. he was nearly headless Nick. I think yes. he appeared in most, if not all of them. Mm-hmm. He had a very small role. It certainly wouldn't go, let's go see that new John Cleese movie, Harry right. Potter. But anyway, made the list. All right. Uh, this next one's from 1990. Okay. Two, two criminals want out, but their boss kills those who leave. When the men are ordered to rob the triad, they keep the money and hide from their boss, the triad, and the police at a convent. Hmm. I don't know that one. Starred Eric Idle? Nope. The movie was called Nuns on the Run. Oh, Nuns on the Run. Oh, my God. Interesting. All right. Uh, This next one, I actually really like this one. This one's from 2001. Okay. A Las Vegas casino magnate determined to find a new avenue for wagering sets up a race for money. And it stars John Cleese. Oh, God, I have no idea. That doesn't make any... That doesn't connect to me, so I don't know. It's called Rat Race. Oh, and it, never it heard of it. It's pretty funny. Oh, yeah? It's kind of a who's who of B-level comedians that were that were around in 2001. It's got a huge cast. Mr. Bean's got a big part in it. Anyway, it was pretty funny. All right. Uh, this one, this one's a little bit of a cheat. This is a cartoon okay. from 2007. And two of the two of the Monty Python guys do voices. Reluctantly designated as the heir to his new homeland, our hero hatches a plan to install a rebellious youngster as the new king, while the hero's wife tries to fend off a coup d'etat by the lover she previously jilted at the altar. Uh, is it Shrek? It is one of the Shreks. Oh, is it Which Sh- part? Shrek 2? Nope. Shrek oh. 3. Well, it's okay. Shrek the 3rd. Okay. believe is the third part. John Cleese does the voice of the king, and Eric Idle is the voice of Merlin. Hmm. All right. 1993. This one might be a little tougher. A duke dies and leaves the title and wealth to his adult son. But who's the real son? The found baby raised in the USA... Or the abandoned baby raised by a Hindi family in London. Oh, I think comedy I know. follows. I think I know that this is splitting airs. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It's got Eric Idle and yep. John Cleese. Yeah. All right. 
this is another one that's sort of a cheat. Okay. Uh, from 1999, mm-hmm. a famous spy uncovers a nuclear plot while protecting an oil heiress from her former kidnapper, an international terrorist who can't feel pain. Oh, God, from 99? Yeah, it's got John Cleese in a, a small part. I don't know. It's a James Bond film called The World Is Not Enough. Oh, I figured it was a Bond film, but I didn't know which one was yeah. in 99. So, yeah. oh, interesting. They introduced John Cleese into those near the end of the Pierce Brosnan okay. run. All right. Uh, the last one before we get into the director, the director stuff. Uh, 1983. I guarantee you're going to get this one right in your wheelhouse. After serving two decades in prison, an aged pirate breaks out determined to recover the treasure that he buried so long ago alongside his son, old crew, and the British Navy. That's uh, Yellowbeard. Yes, yes it is. Nice. Graham Chapman as the title character Yellowbeard and Eric Idle is also in that one. All right. So most of those ones were a little outside of your comfort zone, so you didn't get, do too well, but I, I think you'll do amazing on this next part. Okay, so uh, I've got seven movies here that were directed or co-directed by at least one member of the Monty Python crew. Uh, in no particular order, that's that's uh, that's the common thread here. Is that they were all directed by one of the one of the guys, at least one of the guys. The first one, this one we actually did on our podcast. It's from 1995. In a future world devastated by disease, a convict is sent back in time to gather information about the man-made virus that wiped out most of the human population on the planet. Um. Oh, that was um. 12 Monkeys? Yes. Yes, it was directed by Gilliam, right? It was yeah. indeed, yes. Yeah. I All remember, right. yeah, you had me watch that. It was pretty good. Yeah, no, I really enjoyed it. They made a, a TV series a spun off from that, which I never watched, but it got good reviews. All right, uh, again, you should do well on this one. 1988, right in your sweet spot. In London, four very different people team up on a jewel heist, then try to double cross one another for the loot complicated by their efforts to fool a very proper, proper barrister. And that was A Fish Called Wanda. It was A Fish Called Wanda, which was co-directed by John Cleese. Yes. I did not know. Also starring John Cleese and Michael Palin. Uh, and Academy Award winner Jamie Lee Curtis, but yeah. obviously she's not a part of Monty Python. All right, uh, 1985. A bureaucrat in a dystopic society becomes an enemy of the state as he pursues the woman of his dreams. That was Brazil. It was also directed by Terry Gilliam, uh, features Michael Palin and uh, Terry Gilliam has a small guest spot in that one as well. Mm -hmm. All right. Little tougher. 1998, an oddball journalist and his psychopathic lawyer travel to the city of sin for a series of psychedelic escapades. Ooh. Ooh. I don't know. Directed by Terry Gilliam. And it's Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. Oh, he did direct that too. That's right. Yeah, I totally forgot he directed that Mm -hmm. until I looked him up. All right. 1988, an account of the hero's supposed travels and fantastical experiences across late 18th century Europe with his band of misfits. The Adventures of Baron Munchausen. Yes. Directed by Gilliam. Gilliam. And again, Eric Idle had a part and Gilliam himself had a small guest. That's right. All right. Uh, We only got a couple more to go. Uh, From 1991, a former radio DJ, suicidally despondent because of a terrible mistake he made, finds redemption in helping a deranged homeless man who is an unwitting victim of that mistake. Oh, it was the Fisher King. That was Gilliam. 
directed by Terry Gary. Yeah. It's pretty good. Yeah. All right. This one, I don't know. You're either going to get it or uh, or you're going to have no idea. I think you're going to get this one. 1978. Wow. Directed by a member of the troupe. Okay. Charts the adventures of possibly the most famous band of all time. I want. I almost want to say it was the Ruddles. It was. Directed by Eric Idle. By Eric Idle. Yeah. It. yeah. Oh, wow. Very good. Uh, yeah. Eric Idle and Michael Palin both had multiple parts in it. They did. If you All remember right. um, when we did our podcast on favorite movies about music, that was my number one. I yeah. Love no, I, oh, that's so what I was good. like, oh, Chris going to get that. Yeah. All right. Last one. Nice, easy one. Okay. Slow ball right over the plate so you can crank it out of the park from 1981. A young boy accidentally joins a band of time traveling dwarves as they jump from era to era looking for treasure to steal. And you know what? I love this movie. It was so good. Time Bandits. Yeah, and it's another one we did on the podcast. Oh, it's so good. Directed by Terry Gilliam, and uh, it's got Michael Palin and mm-hmm. John Cleese. John Cleese is Robin Hood. Thanks. Oh, he was so good. Jolly good. Yeah. Jolly. Yeah. How long have you been a robber? Four foot one. Oh, jolly good. It's <laughs> so good. I love that movie. It's so good. And you know what? I've, I've shown that uh, movie to my kids, and they love it too. It's so yeah. unique and bizarre. Terry Gilliam had a real way when he directed things of using like practical special effects in ways that even I watching it, I'm like, how do you do that? Like, oh, so, so good. So yeah. I knew the ones with the, the first part of that trivia with a lot of the stuff from the 90s was going to be tough because I know you don't know a lot of those movies, but I figured you would get the director. You got all the director ones, so I figured you were going to. So good job. Oh, you missed Fear and Love in Las Vegas. But again, right. that was from the 90s. No, exactly. So go figure. So overall, I thought I did pretty good on that one. So uh, yeah. what do you say next time when we come back, we'll uh, we'll do a topic on something. We'll figure out what yeah, that sounds like a great plan. And then we'll uh, we'll look at some more movie celebrating yeah. anniversaries. We're, we're we're getting close to the end of the calendar year. We're getting there. We're getting yeah, there. We'll and then we'll, next year we'll have to come up with a new uh, hook for what some of the things we're going to do. You know, we'll, we'll come up with that. But and, until we come up with that, I'm Chris McBride. That's Derek Myers. And this is Pop Goes Your World, the pop culture podcast for the generations. <laughs> for listening to Pop Goes Your World. You can contact Chris and Derek at popgoesyourworld.com. Please take a minute and review the podcast on iTunes or wherever you download and listen to the show.